0: Welcome back to The Exchange Podcast. My name is Sabrina Parker, and I created The Exchange Podcast to speak with business leaders, entrepreneurs, and creatives from around the world. Join me as I have meaningful conversations with those who inspire me, and who I hope will inspire you too. For this episode, I am so grateful to be joined by Sarah Irby. Sarah is a veteran cosmetics marketer with over 20 years of experience at companies like Unilever, Cody, Fresh, and Estee Lauder. At the latter, she spent over a decade helping lead marketing efforts for the Estee Lauder brand, Bobby Brown, and Tom Ford. Sarah attended Spelman College and received her MBA from the NYU Stern School of Business, and has spent her professional career in New York City. With strong skills in brand management, multimedia marketing, luxury goods, consumer products, and innovation, Sarah has become a successful marketer in the beauty space. In our conversation, we spoke about the Melee brand Sarah co founded while at Unilever, her varied experiences in the industry, and her new role at Cody Beauty. Hi Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. For anyone who doesn't know you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure Sabrina, thanks so much for having me on. So my name is Sarah Irby and uh, I live in New York City with my husband and uh, two teenage children. Um, and I am a you know, long-time veteran of the beauty industry. And we'll be very happy to share bits about my career path with
0: you today. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. so we wanted to start with Unilever. Could you walk us through what you did there and also what you did with the Melee brand? Absolutely. So um,
1: I worked at Unilever for about you know, three and a half years, and it was an incredible experience. Um, it's a company that's all about purpose. Also, sustainability, and they truly believe that um, having a purpose beyond the product is key to being a powerful brand because when people buy into the brand they 're not only buying you know the very high quality product that it is, but they are also looking to help address a societal tension a societal issue so it was a very kind company to work. I love the culture a lot of very smart people, lots of processes and systems and testing and metrics and so much to constantly and continually learn. Um, In fact, I used to jokingly call it, you know, I felt like I was working at Unilever University because there was always continuous learning and improvement. And you were asking about the melee brand. So yeah, so when I joined Unilever, the role that they hired me for was to oversee their portfolio of facial skincare brands in the US market. So brands like Pons, Noxema, St. Ive, Simple, and some others, very well-known brands, probably most people in America have used at one point, if not today, still using. But also very excitingly, they were launching and creating new brands. And one of those brands that I played the biggest role in the creation of was a brand called Melee for, for melanin-rich skin. It was called Melee, the Science of Melanin-Rich Skin. And we co-founded the brand with three dermatologists of color and also real people from black and brown communities, because we were just looking at the demographics and the shifting demographics of the U.S. And in the U.S., 40% of people are non-white, but the skincare industry was sort of still tending to treat all the skin the same. So sort of, are you, you know, oily, combination, uh, you know, dry. And then, you know, what is your main issue, acne or wrinkles? <laughs> but, but people weren't really going a layer deeper and looking at how when you have melanin in your skin, which is what gives your color to your skin, um, it, it has um, very specific properties about it that, that make the skin function in a certain way. And um, I used to love to call it the good, the bad, and the magic of melanin because for example when you have melanin in your skin you actually age more slowly you wrinkle less you even have a little built-in spf but the downsides are you can get a lot of hyperpigmentation which means more melanin produced than that would leads to uneven skin tone or lingering dark spots and also some other issues around moisture imbalance, etc. So we studied very deeply how melanin functions in the skin, and then developed a range of it was a tight capsule collection of about seven products that were really designed to help melanin rich skin be its and, and look its very best. So that was an incredible journey, which really allowed me to use my you know 20 years of beauty industry experience. But in a way that was very meaningful to an you know, underserved group of people who were huge enthusiasts of, of the beauty industry and skincare specifically, but their needs had been unmet. And so that was probably the highlight of my my time at Unilever. But it was an incredible company to work at, and I admire so much the work that they continue to do.
0: Mm-hmm. And since you were involved in kind of the creation of that brand, Um, Were you just involved with the marketing of it or were you involved in the back end in terms of the product development, um, better understanding kind of what the market needed? Absolutely. So the way these companies work,
1: most all companies where I've worked in the beauty industry, they have what you call global marketing, which is very much in charge of the brand strategy, the innovation pipeline, the new product development process. And being really the point people behind the scenes, as you were saying, on all the development of the packaging, the formulations, what are the ingredients, what will it smell like, look like, how will we name it, etc. That's usually handled by the global team. I was in a US role, which is that side of local marketing is about, you know, running the PL, the advertising budget, all of the activations, the marketing activations from Coupons to you know the distribution to dealing with the retailers, setting pricing, etc. And so typically it's the global team that's really most involved and only exclusively involved in the whole creation of the product, but because the product was being developed specifically for the U.S. market. And because I and my boss, who were the ones that were the co-founders and came with the idea of the need of the brand, they involved us much more heavily than they would typically involve a U.S. local marketer. And so we did have a team of people who were the day-to-day point persons with R&D, with speaking directly to the dermatologists and the um, the consumers along the way. But as a part of the U.S. team, We were weighing in on the formulations, on the packaging, on the naming, on how we came up with our campaign messaging, because we wanted to make sure that when we brought it to market, it was done in a way that was super authentic and um, relevant and resonating in the U.S. And so fortunately, we got to be very, very hands-on in the development of the products and the whole brand itself, in addition to
0: executing the marketing. Mm-hmm. And did you have any kind of major takeaways from being in the driver's seat and being more entrepreneurial in that way?
1: Oh, so many, too many to name. <laughs> but what I would say is the importance of getting everything right, step by step, from the concept to the counter. So making sure that once we all landed on the concept that we wanted to have a range that was developed specifically for melanin-rich skin, what do we mean by that? We mean people with sort of tan to deep brown skin, that first of all, we would really deeply understand what were the key concerns that they had that weren't currently being met on the market so that when we came out, it was not just another Me Too product that they can say, well, I could get this someplace else we wanted to make sure that we were really making a difference when we launched this range of products and we're bringing something that they couldn't get elsewhere. So that started with insights and really deeply understanding. It was a long list of concerns. So I talked about hyperpigmentation, uneven skin tone, dark spots, moisture imbalance, but there are also enlarged pores. There's also other concerns, a, a long list of concerns. One of the biggest ones was Someone might have a blemish or a, a razor, you know, from shaving. They may have a razor bump. And that sore or blemish may be gone within a week, but then the spot could linger for six months. So it's a real pain point. And so our number one selling product ended up being the dark spot control serum because it was the absolute biggest concern and most under addressed issue. And so knowing that, you know, we made that our hero product and, you know, everything that we did, we would highlight that when we talked to editors, when we talked about social posts, and it ended up being 50% of the sales of the entire range because we really hit on the number one concern. So I'd say the biggest takeaway is if you're going to bring a new product or a new brand to market, make sure that you are truly addressing a white spot in the industry and so that you stand out and can actually capture the needs of, that are under addressed and then, you know, and then you can find success. So I'd say the number one takeaway is really finding the insights that lead to that value add that you'll be bringing to the market.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so many brands don't prioritize or really support melanated skin in the way that melee and Unilever have. I was wondering maybe what the culture was like at Unilever that was sort of conducive to this brand being created.
1: I'd say that Unilever was a place where people were really valued insights and data and knowing well that there were very few brands and products addressing that space specifically was compelling to Unilever because they're all about data and insights. And then secondly, Unilever is a company with a heart and a true concern for people. They used to talk about, you know, people, planet, and purpose. And people is a very, very big part of the Unilever culture and being of service to people. So, you know, once they had the compelling data that this indeed was sort of worth the time, worth the investment to explore this from a size of business potential, then comes the heart. The people. Deserve this, you know. I mean, you know that people deserve to have skincare that's specifically going to address their needs, Um, and making sure that we took the time to listen to consumers, and you know, we had executives in the company that were willing to invest um, company resources for R and D for you know consumer testing. You know, all the time and energy and efforts to develop a, a brand like this um, that fell outside of something that Unilever you know, was doing previously, it takes heart to, to want to, to invest in that. So I you know, hats off and kudos and give a lot of credit to the executives for not only being compelled by the data, but also having that human-centric approach to brand development and wanting to be of service to, to people.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I'd like to just go back a little bit further to when you were at Estee Lauder. Uh, You held a a number of roles there for over a decade. I was wondering if you could walk us through what you did there. Absolutely.
1: So Estee Lauder is another company that really has a place in my heart forever. I was there for over 12 years. I worked on three different brands in sort of increasing succession of responsibility. And it was the first time I ever worked in global marketing. So my first role was on the Estee Lauder brand and I was in global makeup marketing. So I was working on a $600 million business and I was in charge of the color category. So lip, eye, and also the color stories. So every season, we would come up with a different collection that tied into the fashion trends. And that was um, a wonderful experience. Um, It was a brand where you had the family itself very involved and focused on it because it literally bears their name. So, you know, it was a very high profile brand to work on inside the company. It was also one of the largest brands in the company. Um, I think the brand today is about $3 billion of the company, which is around 12 billion. So, you know, it's a very big size of the business and it's, you know, the namesake of the family and the company itself. So very high profile brand to work on. But what was interesting about it was it was at different stages and life cycle throughout the world. So in the U.S., some people considered Estee Lauder to be sort of not only their, their mother's brand, but maybe even their grandmother's brand. <laughs> so we had challenges of how do we stay relevant to the U.S. consumer, um, which was still a very, very sizable market you know, for the global brand overall. But meanwhile, you travel across and around the globe to Asia, and it was considered sort of a, a new brand or a brand that was used by younger people. And so, you know, they, we didn't have a problem. I mean, our average age of of the consumers in Asia was around age 30, where in the U.S. it was maybe, you know, 40 to 50 and and up. And so um, it was really about making sure that the brand was on the cutting edge of science and all of the benefits that the Asian consumer was seeking, whether it was the Japanese consumer, the Korean consumer, the Chinese consumer, and making sure that you were um, giving them all the information because th- those consumers there do a lot of research and they are sometimes even more knowledgeable than the beauty advisor behind the counter. So you had to really be sure to have all the information about the science, the patents, the ingredients, the formulations, the benefits that you were going to get and how that stacked up versus the competition. So very, very interesting. I loved, it was my first exposure to global marketing And that's really where I learned that global marketing is a two-way street. It's not about you know sitting in New York telling the whole world, you know, what they're gonna launch, how they're gonna launch it, and take it or leave it. It's you or nothing without the markets and they're making sure that they are bought in and included in the process to make sure that what you're working on will not only resonate with their consumers from China to the UK to Europe to the U.S. in terms of what consumers are looking for from a benefit standpoint, an ingredient standpoint, a formulation standpoint. And if you if you want to know an example, for example, a face cream. In Europe, the gold standard for a face cream texture is to be very rich and, and, um, and sort of thick. Um, when you dip into the jar, it should feel very rich and thick in order for it to be perceived as a high-quality face cream. Whereas in the U.S., people might want something that's a little lighter in texture, that has a more quickly, quickly absorbs, that's maybe um, somewhere in between a cream and a lotion. And then in Asia, you know, they they use many different layers. Um, in, in Korea, they're known for their 10-step routine. So they will do 10 steps of skincare in the morning, and that might include an emulsion which feels like a very light watery type of lotion to a U.S. consumer, and then follow that up with a face cream. <laughs> so really understanding what is going to work and the different markets around the world, those are some of my key lessons. To be a successful global marketer, you really have to good, have a good handle on the local market needs.
0: Mm-hmm. And I know that formulations can be created for specific locations. I was curious to know what the relationship is like between marketing and product development and if those two are pretty closely linked. Yes, yeah, so um,
1: depending on the company, you have different degrees of um, um, what marketing does versus what product development does. At SA Lauder companies, we had fully blown out, fully developed, in-charge product development teams. And they um, would really work closely with They were sort of the liaison, I would say, between marketing and R&D and third-party manufacturers when we would utilize outside resources, to develop new products. And what they would really work closely with marketing on is understanding what is the size of the opportunity, what are the business insights that lead to this new product development, um, what are the consumer desires, what are the interests, and really getting that information from marketing. And then... On the other end of things, they're then tapping into R&D to say, hey, what new formulas do you have in the lab that you've been working on that we can tap into to address these consumer needs? And then kind of going back and forth and getting the textures right, the scent right, the function right, the ingredients right, trying, trying, trying. And then when you're talking about cosmetics – all the different shades, right, of foundation, making sure that the undertones are right, making sure that the product is stable, meaning that the formula um, will, you know, last for two, three years on the shelf before it, you know, kind of falls apart, that it's compatible with the packaging that you're putting it in. So getting the formulations just right That is squarely in the department and the scope of work of the product developers. Um, And then if you're lucky, you have a good product development partner with it. You have a good relationship with a product developer who will let you try along the way as a marketer. I've worked with both. I've worked with some product developers who are like, this is my domain. You will get to touch and feel the product when I say it's done and not a moment sooner. Um, which can be a little frustrating when you're on the marketing side and you're having to do all this liaisoning with the markets who are also wanting to touch and feel and try the product, and you're like, Well, I'm waiting for product development to give it to me. Um, because it really is a partnership to make sure that what you ultimately launch is gonna resonate. So, you know, I've had very, you know, um great partners that let you try it along the way. I've also had partners who are like, when it's done, it's done. And then sometimes it's too late to do anything. So I think you can um, get a sense for the partners I like. So yeah, that's kind of like the swim lanes, if you will, of marketing versus product development and and what they do. And then I mentioned that depending on the company, you you may have marketing even more hands-on. And I'd say Unilever was a place where marketing was also sort of product development. The same was when I was at Cody. When I was there at least back in 2000 to 2006, um, the product development team consisted of two people and like an assistant <laughs> for the whole division. So they were very happy for the marketers to get very hands-on and back and forth with R&D and get in there and try the different formulations and kind of go back and forth and you know involve them along the way, certainly. But they were very happy to have the different marketers involved in the products that we were developing Um, but you know, like I said, at Estee Lauder, they had fully blown out product development teams. So that was their domain.
0: And after being at Estee Lauder, you remained within the Estee Lauder companies, um, but you were at Bobby Brown. I was wondering if your role was different in any way in terms of your responsibilities there.
1: Absolutely. So, um, my role was completely different, um, though related, but really a completely different skill set. So what was exciting about Um, And this is probably another career lesson that I can share. What was great about my move to Bobby Brown is that I actually, 13 years into my career, moved over and took this role that was called global consumer marketing. And I actually learned a whole different skill set sort of midway through my career. So I learned CRM, Customer relationship management. Consumer insights much more deeply than when I had been sort of a user, right, an end user of research studies that would come back. Here, I was the point person for research studies. And then also the dot-com team dot-lined into me, and I was getting involved in digital marketing um, and a little bit involved in social media, though that kind of sat in between marketing and the PR team. But I was learning all this hands-on on the job. And, and so I ended up developing this whole consumer marketing skill set that I, I never would have had had I just remained in that quote unquote product marketing track. Um, so different skill set. And that actually led to after doing that for nearly five years and learning so much and learning how to maximize the lifetime value of a customer without even having to launch a new product or talk about, you know, this new foundation or this new lipstick. We were able to unlock sales and get much more penetration of our existing products among customer bases by making it a two-way conversation with consumers and telling them about our best-selling products, inviting them in for these services. So We were doing these things called makeup lessons where we would invite consumers in to learn how to do a smoky eye, learn how to do a professional makeup look, for maybe you had a job interview coming up. Maybe you had a teenager in your life and you could bring in for a teenage makeup lesson. And all of that came from Consumer Insights of knowing that people really wanted to learn when they came to the counter. They didn't want to just be having getting a makeover. They wanted to be able to do it when they got home themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then after that, you still were within the Estee Lauder companies at Tom Ford. Um, I was wondering what you did there and if you kind of took any lessons from being at Estee Lauder and being a Bobby Brown into your role at Tom Ford.
1: Sure. So, um, Tom Ford really gave me the opportunity to bring together all the product marketing experience that I had, had, up through Estee Lauder, um, brand, and then all the consumer marketing experience I had gained at Bobby Brown, and and do that for for Tom Ford Beauty globally. So yeah, we had a team of a probably about, um, I don't know, it was about eighteen people working on global marketing, and we had a very robust fragrance business and then this sort of super exciting and sexy makeup business that was smaller. But we did a number of things that allowed us to grow. We we had tremendous growth. The brand was growing to like 30 to 40% every year. And Again, tapping into that consumer marketing, one of the most exciting campaigns we worked on was something called Lips and Boys. Tom Ford was the first one to, one of the first to launch a super duper, very expensive lipstick. The lipstick was $50. And so that made it very appealing and very sort of like desirable um, and aspirational. But it was a bit out of reach for people, even who could maybe afford it. They said, why should I pay $50 for a lipstick? So we, we had an idea collectively between the product development team and also our creative team to come up with a, what we call the clutch size lipstick. So it was a smaller lipstick, but a still fully functioning bullet lipstick. And we priced it on par with Chanel full-size lipstick. And so we were pricing it at $36 versus a full-size Tom Ford was $50. And not only that would that open up to new people to be able to to be able to afford and and buy a Tom Ford lipstick but we came up with this really fun theme where we named we launched 50 shades and we did it as a limited edition collection and we named all of the shades after men in Tom Ford's life so there was James named after his husband there was like Drake Tom Ford and Drake sort of had a, you know, kind of a shout out relationship because Drake had done, given shout outs to Tom Ford, like he had a song called Tuscan Leather, which was named after Tom Ford Fragrance, or he would talk about wearing Tom Ford. So we named one Drake and there was a Jake, as in Jake Gyllenhaal, because they were working on a movie together at the time. So anyway, we, there were 50 boys' names and then our brilliant creative team came up with Lips and Boys. And then Tom Ford with his creative director went off and did this super duper sexy video where you had this woman like kissing, kissing, kissing all these different men. (laughs) And they were like different ages and races. And it was super duper sexy. And I tell you, people were coming in droves to the counter. Like, what is this Lips and Boys? I need it now. And um, so it just goes to show, you know, that when you can come up with something that's really in engaging to a consumer and really sort of like surprises and delights and maybe shocks shocks them, it's not just about the product, right? It's also about the campaign and having something that's catchy and thematic and that all of them were named after boys. And of course, it was limited life, so you had to get it before they sold out. So that was probably one of the most successful things that we did that really helped to, to make the makeup business grow.
0: Mm-hmm. And previously to that, you were at Cody. Um what were you doing in that role specifically?
1: Yeah, so um when I joined Cody, I actually joined in the Mass Division on the Calgon brand, which is this old tired bath brand, but it was, you know, still a you know decent sized business. And I worked on really revamping that line and making it more competitive pricing wise because we were about to lose our distribution at Walmart because um we were priced at something like almost five dollars. It was like four seventy-nine. And there was this other brand called Vaseline Intensive Care Bath Beads, which were priced at like $1.99. So um, we worked to sort of reformulate the the product so that there was no really perceivable difference to the consumer experience, but it made it much more affordable. And we repackaged it in a way that made the packaging um, a little less expensive as well and did some new photography for the packaging and were able to price it down, not as low as $1.99. But um, I think we got down into like 229, something like that. Then we launched another range of products from Cal- Calgon that were sort of like specialty baths. So they were competing with the Bath and Body Works or, you know, the, the body shops of the world. But you could buy it at a Walmart or a Target. And so we, we, we developed this range called Calgon Ah Spa. <laughs> and we had like Ah Spa Tropics, Ah Spa Ocean. And all these different product ranges that we're tapping into different ingredients. So tropical ingredients versus marine ingredients. And I was doing all this stuff. And the president was like, you know, Sarah's really got, you know, it's a good talent. Um, Why don't we put her on a part of the business that that matters? And so more than Calgon. So um, I was promoted and put on Stetson. And Stetson at the time, Stetson Cologne was the largest fragrance in the mass market, um, but it was in decline. And so we were really charged with how do we make Stetson cool again? And so we ended up hiring an advertising, a new advertising agency. And we ended up executing what became sort of a three pronged strategy, which was first we signed Matthew McConaughey to be the face of Stetson. And this was before Matthew was like, had done any other product endorsement so this is before dolce and gabbana before lincoln and all that we were first is that his first ever product endorsement and a lot of research went into that decision we didn't sort of you know pick his name out of a hat we we did research to figure out what celebrities might resonate as relevant to being representative of stetson you know what did our consumer base resonate with right so we wanted to make sure that it would be something that our consumers agreed made sense for the brand and all that checked out. And so we, we made him the face of the, the Stetson brand. Then we launched a new fragrance that he was also the face for called Stetson Black. And this was also again, ahead of its time, it was before Armani Black Code and Polo Black before everyone had like a black fragrance. And so that was really cool. And um, it was a, sort of the dressed up version of Stetson. So it was about you know um, having a different usage occasion or even a whole new consumer to introduce to the Stetson brand that maybe people who didn't like what Stetson smelled like. And then the third thing we did was to sign Shania Twain to develop a series of fragrances you know by Shania for Stetson to bolster the female side of the of the fragrance portfolio because once upon a time Stetson had a pretty robust female fragrance business called Lady Stetson. And, but that had been sort of dated and, you know, it was dying off. So we developed um these fragrances with Shania Twain and she was just absolutely so lovely to work with. Um, And so was Matthew, by the way, but he was more just, you know, we did a photo shoot with him and then, you know, he got his check. Whereas Shania was hands-on involved in developing what would it smell like? What would the packaging be? What did the advertising campaign, what would it look like? And she was very, very involved hands-on, and inspiring every element of, um, of the fragrances. And then we did, we did three with her. So that's what I was doing at Stetson. I'm sorry, at Cody.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's super inspiring. Um, but then also before that, you were at L'Oreal, and I believe that was your first role in the cosmetics industry. I was wondering how you got that job and why you decided to make the move into cosmetics.
1: Absolutely. So um, to answer that, I'll just go back one step, which was that my very first job out of college was actually investment banking. And I was a financial analyst um, at Morgan Stanley, and I thought it's what I wanted to do. Um, but once I got there, didn't love it. It was all sort of just money and numbers and n- money and numbers and that's all. And so I, you know, did that for three years and got tremendous training. I mean, really world-class, you know, professional training. But I, I said, I really want to do something more than just numbers and money. And so I decided to get my MBA in marketing and um, in international business and I was interviewing for different positions in marketing. And the one that I landed was um, at Revlon, actually. And I did the, my summer between business school years at Revlon. And I fell in love with the beauty industry. And then when I um, finished um, my MBA, um, I actually did a part of my MBA. Um, I did a semester in, in at a French business school. And so L'Oreal actually recruited off of, NYU Stern where I went to business school they, they recruited off campus and when they saw Revlon on my resume and they knew that I could speak French and I had lived in France in grad school and also in college um, they were like you know come come aboard to L'Oreal so you know I thought that that would combine sort of my professional love of beauty and my personal love of France and so that's why I joined L'Oreal that and the fact that they are the world's leading beauty conglomerate. <laughs> so um, quite, a, quite a great place to start your, your beauty industry career.
0: Mm-hmm. And just to go back to your time at Morgan Stanley, I'm curious to know if there were any sort of major takeaways or transferable skills that you learned there that you think has helped you in your career in marketing.
1: Absolutely. Probably the
0: number one thing that I learned
1: there was the development of an incredible work ethic. So um, that is the land of, and I'm sure you and, and the listeners of your podcast maybe have heard about, you know, investment banking and the long, long hours, the, you know, the hundred hour work weeks of the 80, hundred hours a week we were working um, around the clock and this sort of insatiable drive to get things done well, get them done right. And no matter what it takes, no matter how long it takes. And burning the midnight oil. And so, um, you know, you you really uh, learned to work hard, learned attention to detail. Perfectionism was the standard. Um, you know, we got to learn Word, PowerPoint, Excel, and, you know, those fundamentals. But we also learned about interacting with clients and how, you know, to, um, you know, comport yourself professionally and, getting along with others, because it wasn't just about cranking out the work. You also had to, you know, have a personality, have a point of view, be interesting at dinners. So that's really, you know, what I took away was the work ethic and then the importance of developing relationships and and having a personality and a point of view and being, you know, being interesting to be with in addition to delivering um, the, business, the business needs.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was wondering also if you had any advice for somebody looking to get into marketing. Would you recommend taking a similar path that you did in terms of maybe starting in something different and pivoting into it?
1: Well, what I would say is if you're lucky enough to know what you want to do or at least to think you know what you want to do, always go for that first. As I mentioned, I thought I wanted to do investment banking. I really, really did. I I thought that just sounded so glamorous and exciting to me. But once I was there, I didn't like it. Um, Obviously, I did get a lot out of it, but I was lucky enough to get it right on the second try. And so I used you know, the opportunity to go and get an MBA as a way to pivot and what they called it, career switch from finance into marketing. So what I would say is, if you're lucky enough to know that you really want to do marketing, go for it. Um, it takes an awful lot of networking, though, I would say, to break into marketing because I'd say that especially when you're coming out of college, um, and I know that, Sabrina, you're, you're a sophomore, and I just am of so blown away at your maturity and, and everything that you're doing. Um, but you're, you know, you're about to be thinking about, you know, what's next. You know, you have the investment banking firms and the banking, you know, commercial banking firms and um, also the consulting firms. They tend to come in droves to campuses to recruit. But maybe a little less so on the marketing side, right? I mean, you don't have a lot of marketing function coming. I think to 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 recruit at college level, so it does require networking in my experience um, to get into marketing. But if you know that's what you want to do, I would say network, talk to as many people as you can, and see how you can get an internship, paid or unpaid, while you're in while you're in school, so that you can build your resume. But if you were like me. And, you know, you do get recruited to something else that offers you great professional training experience. So you have a lot of commercial banks that have these training programs, consulting firms, et cetera. Go for it, get that training. And then you can use, you know, use getting an MBA as a way to transition out of, out of, out of that field and into what you really want to do.
0: hmm Yeah, and one of the last things that I wanted to ask you was, what are you currently working on or looking to do in the future?
1: Well, um, very excitingly, I am actually uh, about to start a new position in just a couple of weeks. I am going back to Cody Beauty, where I worked um, in the early 2000s, and I am joining as Vice President of Marketing for the U.S. for CoverGirl and Rimmel. Um, so very, very exciting, um, to be going back to, to Cody, which is a company that I always loved the culture. Um, and I'll be going back to mass makeup, um, which is all where it all started when I was at L'Oreal doing mass makeup on the L'Oreal Paris brand. So super excited to be joining the team there. And, um, you know, CoverGirl is such an iconic brand. Um, in beauty, and you know, really being a part of the fabric of American beauty and all the people who, you know, CoverGirl may be one of the first brands they use. So very, very excited to to be working on that, as well as Rimmel, which um, is actually the number one brand in the U.K. It's a little less known in the U.S., but um, they're really, really known for their eye and their lip products. Whereas CoverGirl is mostly known for face and also mascara. So really looking forward to working on both of those brands.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah that's super exciting. Congratulations again. thank you. uh The last question that I wanted to close out with, I was wondering how your perspective of beauty or the perspective of the cosmetics industry at large has shifted with the pandemic. Yeah, so a couple of
1: thoughts come to mind on that. One is about how beauty products were used sort of when the pandemic hit versus you know kind of like the transition back to life as we knew it um that where we are today where sort of, first of all, everyone sort of like, beauty sort of fell off the cliff because everyone was concerned about safety, right? And hygiene and washing, washing, washing everything. And, you know, just being clean. And, you know, they were less concerned about wearing makeup, you know, even maybe less concerned about skincare. But what was interesting as the pandemic evolved and, you know, we all were sort of on Zoom, but maybe off camera, then it was like, why don't we be on camera? So then, people started wanting to look good on camera again, right? So they started caring about their skin. They started wearing a little makeup again, but they aren't going to go for the full, you know, blown face, right? It's like, who is really going to be sitting at home, you know, with you know, you know, uh, mascara and eyeshadow and lipstick and blush? You know, it looked a little unnatural, right? People were going to go for maybe a little bit of makeup, a little more of a natural look. But they realized that they had to look good on Zoom um, and present themselves, you know, to, to really, you know, come across, you know, an effective way and feel confident and, and professional on camera. So that was an interesting thing to go through. You know, also fragrance was kind of out the window because everyone was home. It's like, what do I need to put on fragrance? But then as people started reemerging and people were getting vaccinated and, you know, coming back out. Fragrance was just on fire. People wanted to wear fragrance again. People wanted to wear makeup again. So it was really interesting to see that that wave and that transition and and, and, and that timeline of um, how beauty products were, were being used. It kind of came, skincare came back first, then makeup, then fragrance. Um, the other thing I would say is one of the things that this country in particular really experienced, but it was happening globally, but I think we really felt it in this country, was the importance of all the um you know uh the social justice movement that was going on and all of the the black lives matter and the george floyd and all of the attention that was brought to you know how black and brown people were had been mistreated for you know hundreds of years but that it was still going on and police police brutality and people really saying you know, enough is enough and so um the things that happened like Um, people using more Black-owned brands and um, companies like Target and Sephora making a point to carry more Black-owned brands or BIPOC-owned businesses um, and brands and the importance of, um, you know, brands paying more attention and representing people of all ethnicities and body shapes and ages in advertising, right? So people were kind of really over not being seen, not being heard, not being represented in in advertising and in social media. So I think it was awakening for the beauty industry to say, you know, enough is enough. We have to represent everyone who uses our products and we have to give a shot to everyone who all the brands out there that are, you know, having beautiful products that might not have had the distribution, not, not had the attention that they deserve. So the beauty industry definitely went through a shift of paying more attention to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and having more representation in advertising, in social media, and also brands themselves being represented in the big retailers like Target, like Sephora, where they made a point to, to carry these brands that maybe they had ignored before. So to me, those were the, the very big movements that we lived through um, with the pandemic and beauty.
0: Thank you so much. I think we'll end it there for this time, but I really appreciate you joining me. 100%! Thank you for having me, Sabrina. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed that conversation, please be sure to leave a review and stay tuned for the next episode.